Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Test, track, and trace. That's one of the government's mantras as we go forward in the coronavirus crisis. And now, as part of what's being dubbed the new normal, the government are working on a phone-based computer app to help us to do this. The full details haven't been made public yet, but there is already an app that millions of people are using to report their symptoms, or lack of them, every day. Designed by scientists and doctors in London, it shows you the rates of infection in different parts of the country, and the data it's gathering is already delivering some interesting results. The app grew out of Twins UK, a study of 15,000 twins, and the latest finding, focusing on data from those twins, is that your genetic makeup could have an impact on your risk of getting COVID-19 and what symptoms you might develop. Katie Haler has been speaking with one of the researchers, Francis Williams, from King's College London. We launched that app from King's College London in collaboration with Zoe, a venture capitalist group, at the end of March. So for the purposes of this study, was it the twins data set you were particularly interested in? That's right. Because Twins UK was founded in 1992, we've collected lots and lots of data. And we have uh, on six and a half thousand of them, for example, we have genetic information. We have lots of background information about uh, where they live, how much they share lifestyle and environmental aspects And we also, in addition to using the app data on the symptoms, we also sent them text messages asking them to update us on their cohabiting arrangements because with lockdown, people's habits might change. What exactly have you done with this rather large data set? How have you analysed it? We've done what's called a classical twin study in which you can compare the symptoms in and among the twin pairs because we know that identical twins share 100% of their genetic material, while non-identical twins share on average 50%, we can compare the relationships between the agreement in symptoms that they have, between the identicals and the non-identicals, and work out roughly what the contribution is of genetic factors compared to the unique environment that each twin has and the uh, shared environment that they have together. And what symptoms specifically are you talking about? Cough, fever, delirium, missing meals, complaining of a hoarse voice, loss of taste and smell, shortness of breath, chest pain, abdominal pain, diarrhoea, that sort of thing. All the commonest symptoms associated with many different viral illnesses. Because five, just over 5,000 people who completed our app have had a test for viral RNA, we knew which of those were tested positive, which tested negative, and therefore we could combine the symptoms in a mathematical model 
to determine the best combination of symptoms that predicts being positive on a, a test for the virus. Oh, I see. And are those the ones you mentioned or is there anything in particular that stands out? So it's a combination of those symptoms Uh, Some of those symptoms, such as the loss of taste and smell and fever with persistent cough and fatigue uh, and age and sex are also in that model. And interestingly, that model uh, has the highest heritability of all the symptoms that we looked at, 50 percent, which means that roughly 50 percent of the difference in expression of those symptoms is accounted for by genetic factors. What does that mean for an individual? Well, it's difficult to extrapolate to an individual because heritability is all about the group differences in the population, if you like. But I think what this is telling us is that while many people consider infections to be an entirely random event, so that if you meet a sufficient dose of the virus, you inevitably become unwell. In fact, it's not entirely random. It is to some extent influenced by the individual And we know that many symptoms of viral illnesses actually occur because of the host immune system reacting to the presence of that virus rather than the damage that the virus itself causes directly. Do you think this could go any way to explain why some people seem to be relatively mildly affected, whereas other people are severely affected? We know that the people that end up with a major illness requiring hospitalisation often developed high levels of inflammatory proteins in the blood. And it may well be that what we're seeing in our study is reflecting the fact that somebody's genetic makeup can impact how their immune system responds to viral infection and whether or not it responds by making very high levels of those inflammatory markers. What's the value in understanding to what extent these symptoms or risks are heritable? Firstly, it's a better understanding of how genetic variation influences people's susceptibility to the disease. So it might be possible if we developed, for example, a tool using uh, genetic material, we could develop a test which would advise people better about their risk of developing COVID. So rather than just have a blanket rule about by age or by sex, everybody has to stay indoors, you could make it more uh, personalised. And the second big value, I think, for this app that is really in play currently is being able to collect large volumes of data real time about how this infection is spreading across the country. Francis Williams. And one note of caution, the team's results haven't yet been double checked, otherwise known as peer reviewed by other scientists. If you haven't downloaded the app yet, though, you can do so by searching up COVID symptom tracker online. Now, as well as the race to find a vaccine for COVID-19, a lot of effort is going on around the world to find suitable treatments and drugs to fight a disease that's never been seen before. Here in the UK, the National Health Service have begun asking coronavirus survivors to donate their blood to see if it can be used to treat those who currently have the infection. Convalescent plasma trials like these are also being carried out in other countries too. But does it work? Robert Leckler is an immunologist at King's College London. This is a very simple concept, really. It's taking plasma, which is the liquid component of blood, from patients who have recovered from COVID-19 and donating that or transfusing that into patients grappling with the virus but failing to clear it. Why do you think that would be useful? 
the theory here is that a key component of clearing the virus is the part of the immune response called antibodies. These are circulating proteins that bind to foreign particles like viruses and help the immune system clear them. And one of the features of making an immune response against the virus is that almost always you do make antibodies. And those, if you transfer them, they circulate in plasma. If you can transfer those into a patient who's grappling with the virus, that those donated antibodies will help the patient to clear the virus. Are there enough people who have actually caught and recovered from coronavirus to make this practical, though? Because we estimate that the number of people in the population in percentage terms who have had it and recovered is still quite low. Well, that's a fair point. It depends very much on how you choose to apply this treatment, which patient population you donate the plasma to. And there are three options. One is patients on intensive care ventilated at risk of losing their lives. The second option is patients who are ill enough to be in hospital but not yet ventilated, and you're aiming to help them clear the virus in order to prevent them needing ventilation. The third option is that you go into care homes for an elderly person who tests positive, even before they're ill, you try to prevent the development of the disease. Now, I would say, based on prior experience, probably the second of those three options is the most attractive. And in that case, then the numbers, I think, work because we do now have hundreds of patients who have recovered around the country and and in the hospitals that I work with at Guy's and St. Thomas's and King's College Hospital. We have well over 100 patients who are, in theory, eligible to donate plasma. So how does it work? What's the nuts and bolts? A person comes in and does, to all intents and purposes, the same thing as we would do when we do a blood transfusion donation. You would take the donation of blood and then skim off the plasma which has got the antibody in it? Roughly speaking, yes. I mean, one way to do it is literally to take a pint of blood and then spin the cells out and give the plasma. Probably more appropriate is to use a technique called plasmapheresis when the blood is taken out of a vein through a machine that spins out the cells, returns the cells to the donor, and the plasma then is taken and transfused into another person. One consideration with these coronavirus infections though is that we think it falls into a range of different phases where the initial phase Mm. is the virus growing in the patient's lungs and doing damage to to the lung tissue and then there's a second phase which some people tend to develop and I don't think it's fair to say we really don't understand why that happens but in that second phase we think the immune system is doing more damage so is there not a risk that if you give people more immune factors you could actually intensify Mm. this it would be almost like pouring oil on the fire. And you're quite right that it does look as though some of the terminal phases of this illness are, if you like, an over-exuberant immune response causing collateral damage. The point I'd make, however, is that antibodies are not really an important part of that collateral damage. That's much more driven by things called cytokines, which are like circulating immune hormones. And I don't think there's a risk of causing greater inflammation in this way. The other point I'd make is that Uh, As you implied in your introduction, this approach, it was used in China, in fact, in some COVID patients. Uh, Hundreds of patients have now been treated in in the US. They really shot off and, and got into gear to do this. And talking to my American colleagues, they haven't seen adverse effects of the kind that you were alluding to. That's reassuring. And just to finish, Robert, is it clear when we need to intervene with this therapy? Or is that what the trial is going to help us to understand, whether it's good to give this therapy early on in the disease course? Or do you wait for someone to be extremely unwell and then you try this as a rescue therapy? 
you, you wouldn't, I think, do this on every patient who gets the virus because for many people it is a relatively mild or moderate illness. Now, this would be for patients who are ill enough to be in hospital. Maybe their oxygen saturation levels are dropping a little bit, but they're not compromised enough to need ventilation. So you're trying to help them turbocharge their immune system to clear the virus before they reach the point of needing ventilation. I think that's the attractive moment to intervene. Robert Leckler with a potentially promising treatment for coronavirus. There's a lot of debate about how far the virus can travel through the air and circulate in enclosed spaces like offices, trains and planes. One fear is that the air conditioning systems might be churning up the air and spreading virus particles much more widely than the recommended two-metre distance from each other that we're all trying to maintain. This applies especially to the large converted spaces like the Nightingale hospitals in the UK and other makeshift facilities in countries like India. So, fluid physicist Andy Woods and architect Alan Short, both at the University of Cambridge, have been working together to try to find a solution to stop the virus from circulating. Phil Sansom has been finding out how they're doing it. The air typically comes in from the side or the top of the building and then circulates down into the space and acts as a very effective mixing system. And we were concerned that if you had people who were coughing or being ventilated, that this large-scale airflow would mix up those aerosols. And so we came up with an idea of cross-flow to have air come in and have it go out in a different way so it wasn't mixing in. When you say aerosols, what are you talking about? When people cough or when people are put on ventilator machines, little droplets of water but other materials too are emitted. And the very small droplets are known as aerosols. And you can have virus on these droplets. Wherever the air goes, these particles go with that air. And so the idea is to supply air at one end of a patient bay and then have the air removed at the other end of the bay. So the air is always going in a particular flow direction. What did you use to back this up? So initially we, we came up with this idea of having this cross flow, and then we built a small tank of water to model the flows. And then we ran these very small-scale experiments just to understand the effect of having this cross flow and discovered that it can reduce the amount of mixing of the air through the space. Alan. What's currently happening with regards to putting this stuff into practice? The project was conceived to help people in the less economically developed economies make safe emergency hospitals. I think, unfortunately, that might start to become more and more relevant. So we're incredibly interested in getting the message out across the rest of the globe. Given that these makeshift hospitals are designed for huge groups of people that all already have coronavirus. How important is it to stop this virus actually getting about? Because all the patients have probably got it anyway. That's true. But the healthcare staff who are walking around are in a way different matters. They're completely sealed up in very good PPE. Then clearly there's nothing to worry about, but perhaps not everybody will be. And in any case, just makes sense to try to dilute the problem anyway, if it's possible and straightforward to do. And it is possible and straightforward. It is, yes, it is possible and straightforward. These simple ideas, separating beds, having air flowing only one way, might apply even more to the not makeshift hospitals, the ones with lots of patients who don't yet have the coronavirus. So I got in touch with microbiologist Nick Brown at Addenbrooke's Hospital here in Cambridge to find out whether this airborne virus is actually a big deal. It's 
difficult to quantify exactly, but we certainly feel that transmission of viruses within institutions like hospitals is a big issue. Are hospitals at the moment currently set up to try and stop that? At the moment, hospitals like ours in Cambridge are running at pretty low capacity. We have several hundred empty beds to create an environment in which we can manage patients with coronavirus safely and also protect patients who don't have it by spacing them out as much as possible. Is there enough physical space and and side rooms for that? Side rooms are always at a premium in hospitals. Most older hospitals have bays of between usually four to 12 people. So yes, clearly keeping people apart is a, a big issue. However, there are some simple things that can be done in modern hospitals to segregate wards as much as possible, perhaps by putting in partitions, perhaps by limiting the number of people or the number of beds that are put in rooms. Even some simple measures can help stop or slow the spread of droplets from the respiratory tract. So if you close the curtains around the bed space, for example, there is some evidence from London that suggests that droplets spread less well. That might be something simple that hospitals can do to try to protect other people. And beyond hospitals, wherever there are people coughing nearby others, these tiny droplets can spread through the air. Might it be worth redesigning aircon in public places? Back to architect Alan Short. Certainly. And I was walking around my local supermarket a couple of days ago, trying to avoid everybody. The air handling system in there is entirely in the roof, exactly like all these other big sheds that we've been looking at. So I think the problem is sort of universal. And I think that Andy and I are going to apply ourselves to that as our next exercise. Yeah, I think there's an enormous interest in trying to do this to understand what safe distancing might look like and how we might use these very large spaces, such as supermarkets or cinemas or theatres, because the air really does mix quite a long way in some of these buildings driven by the air conditioning flows. Andy Woods and Alan Short there from the University of Cambridge. You also heard from microbiologist Nick Brown. You're listening to Five Live Science with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, what happens when public transport begins to return to normal? And we'll hear from one former government minister and what he has to say about the coronavirus pandemic. Before that, though, every year about three quarters of a million babies are born in the United Kingdom. Worldwide, it's over 100 million. And that means that just like Boris Johnson and his fiancée Carrie Simmons, who became proud parents this week, there are many women who are catching coronavirus while they're pregnant. At the moment, doctors don't know how best to advise them of the risks, if there are any, because we know so little about how the disease behaves in pregnancy. So, to address this, researchers at Oxford University have launched an international study to find out. It's being led by Aris Papagiorgiou. Obviously, coronavirus is a a big deal for everybody, but it's particularly worrisome for mothers-to-be and and, and parents who are expecting a baby. And there's lots of guidance, but the scientific information that sits behind that guidance is a little bit sketchy. Most of the information that we have is based on small series of cases. Uh, There are a lot of case reports. As of yesterday, there are 55 scientific papers in the literature that describe women with coronavirus and pregnancy and a great many of them just describe a single case and that's a problem. So one of the things we want to do is to collect large-scale data from lots of women in order to try and answer some basic questions what the impact of coronavirus is on the mother and on the newborn baby. 
what do we think the risk might be? Worst case scenario, is this potentially a Zika situation where you've got something that might potentially damage a developing baby? Or are we comfortable that that's not the issue and the issue is the health of the mother during pregnancy and that she might be at increased risk of complications with her health if she catches coronavirus? The maternal and and fetal conditions are obviously completely linked. Uh, The main risk is to the mother, uh, so she may develop bad respiratory uh, complications, bad breathing problems requiring, for example, intensive care admission. And if that happens, then it may be necessary to deliver the baby prematurely, so to take an active decision to deliver the baby prematurely. The main risks to the baby are actually related to that risk of prematurity and also to the risk of low oxygen delivery to the mother. There haven't so far been any studies to suggest that there's transmission of the virus from the mother to the baby through the placenta. What are you going to do then to try to get this information? So the first thing to say is that we need information at scale. We need much larger numbers. And we are planning to recruit four types of women. Women who've had a positive COVID test, be that a a swab or a blood test. Women who've got strong X-ray evidence of COVID. Women who've had symptoms typically associated with COVID. And then finally, women who have been in very close contact with someone with COVID. For example, they're cohabiting with someone with COVID. We are also recruiting, for every woman that we recruit into the study, we're also recruiting two women who haven't been so exposed. So women who have none of the symptoms, are swab negative, etc. And that's a really important point because we need to see how women with the disease or with the virus compare to those women who haven't been exposed to the virus. And how are you going to follow them up? So women will be recruited any time during pregnancy. So, for instance, you you might have COVID early on in pregnancy. And those women we will follow up right to the end of pregnancy and birth and also into the newborn period for for the baby. Importantly, we'll capture this in lots and lots of different settings. Now, obviously... You know, settings vary a lot around the world. So uh, about half of our centers are in regions where healthcare systems aren't as developed as they are uh, in, in the Western world. The whole study is only going to last for three to six months. It's a quick study because we need the information quickly. Have you asked the Prime Minister if uh, if Carrie might like to volunteer since she, his partner <laughs> has just had a, a healthy baby boy? Uh, very interesting. Uh, we've we've had lots of communication and emails from pregnant ladies offering themselves to take part in the study. At the moment, we want to recruit institutions or hospitals rather than individual women. And the reason for that is that we need to see how the pregnancies of those women are in relation to other women who are giving birth in those institutions. The University of Oxford's Iris Papagiorgiou. Now, if you've been watching the daily Downing Street media briefing or closely reading the newspapers, you'll be well aware of the opening graph, which shows massive reductions in people's uses of buses, trains and the London Underground. But what's going to happen when public transport does begin to return to normal? There are suggestions that many people will continue to work from home. But if you've ever travelled by train or tube in the rush hour, you'll know just how crowded it can get. All over the world, mass transit systems in big cities are facing similar issues. 
How are people going to continue to socially distance on buses and trains and in stations? And how are the operators going to keep their vehicles and their carriages clean? For some expert opinion, Eva Higginbotham spoke to Michelle Batsus in Australia. If we look to Asia, where the outbreak first started, we actually see some fantastic examples of real innovation and technology that's being used. So certainly in places like Shanghai, they're using UV technology. They're exploring nanotechnologies in Shenzhen. And in Hong Kong, you have MTR, the operator there. Actually, they've trialled a disinfecting robot, which has been extremely successful. And so they're now actually um, building more of those to implement on their networks. I think what we've seen is that it's necessary to clean and sanitise public transport. And you have some cities that are doing that on a daily basis You've got Shenzhen doing every trip. You've got Tokyo doing 14 times a day, you know, really stringent cleaning regimes, and that's critical. But the other part of that is it's actually about commuter confidence. So, yes, we need to ensure that we're minimising the risks to commuters, but also actually people just need the perception that things are safe. And so part of the cleaning regime is actually making sure that people can see the cleaning that's going on. And what about social distancing on public transport? Maybe I'm actually safer on a bus now than I've been in a long time in terms of mixing with other people's germs. So how are we going to maintain social distancing, though, once things hopefully start opening up again and people, you know, more more than just um, key workers need to be able to get to work? So first, if we look at the peak, so the morning peak and the afternoon peak, that's when the majority of people going to work uh, are travelling. That is a real challenge for governments and for operators around the world. Now, there is quite a bit of discussion going on around the world right now about the use of masks, which each country has very different views. Again, I know that there are calls for masks to be used in London, including on public transport. Uh, We have some countries that we're seeing now that have, have mandated them. For example, Germany, Brussels has mandated masks need to be used on public transport. We're seeing that already pretty much blanket in Asia. And I think that this presents a very interesting question. And I am not a health expert, but the question is, okay, well, what kind of proportionate measures can be put in place to assist. In the off-peak times, there's actual real validity to maintaining the service levels. So you referred before to you saw an empty bus going by, but as the economy starts to open up and people are going to take that trip to see their grandma or go shopping, actually having as many services as possible can be a good thing because it can allow the social distancing to actually occur. Uh, And so that's what's very key to remember that maintaining service levels can be a very important part of social distancing. But to have as many services as we might need to be able to spread people out enough, you know, you hear about places where they're kind of closing off every other bus seat or every other seat on the tube. Do we actually have enough trains to do that? Well, that's a good question. And the answer, I would say, in the vast majority of times is no. And it's unreasonable to expect that, actually, in that procuring a train is a multi-year effort by the time it's designed and built. So in the short to medium term, it's not actually viable to go and procure more trains or more buses necessarily. Um, However, I think that that's where then a broader conversation with the community and with government has to happen. And I think we'll see this, a discussion about, well, what does this mean for maybe shifting the peak or managing demand? 
Will you now start to see companies who are encouraging staff to work from home more often, or perhaps their hours are staggered? And perhaps I do believe that there will be some cities and countries having a really robust debate about, well, how do we ensure that our city has reasonable social distancing measures in place? Do you think it's likely that at some point we're going to get back to really just sort of stuffing ourselves onto trains and tubes again? Um, You know, are we going to get back to that kind of normal? Or do you think there's going to be another kind of normal for how we use public transport? I think the behaviour will be determined by what the actual situation is at the time. And I think that the responses will be proportionate. So will there be a time where we're stuffing ourselves back into the train carriage? I think probably. And I think, though, that that will be determined on what stage the virus is at and is there a vaccine available or is there herd immunity or, you know, a range of questions to be considered. Um, However, what we do know is that public transport is essential and it always will be to cities and, and vital to the economy. Michelle Batsas from the International Association for Public Transport.